0: On this episode of Launch AMA, we sit down with Kelsey Gernart, head of partnerships at HubSpot for Startups, and we touch on everything from her former life as a local business owner all the way to how she nurtures HubSpot's extensive partnership program of over 4,000 of the world's best incubators and accelerators. Let's get to it. Welcome, everyone. We're welcome back to another episode of uh, Ask Me Anything. I am Sam, as always, your host, and here I have, have with me Kelsey from HubSpot.
1: Welcome, Hi, everyone.
0: <laughs> awesome. Really appreciate it. I know we've been shooting around for for a couple months now, trying to get you on here, and and I'm really glad that you can finally make it.
1: Yeah. Likewise. I think it's it's been a busy few months for everybody.
0: Yeah. Every time around the turn of the turn of the year, right? <laughs> All right. So just a couple of housekeeping rules to how this works. If you guys have questions is as we're just talking and discussing, please do pump them into the, to the chat box for those listening live. And for those listening in a recording, you're just kind of have to enjoy this, this material. Um, but I mean, just to kick things off, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how, you know, how you got into HubSpot, your, your background and give us, give us the origin story.
1: Yeah. Happy to do that. Um, I would have been shocked to find out that I ended up having a career in tech um, when I started early on. So I started in the nonprofit industry and essentially I was launching a, a new startup program in a, in a different geo every year. And so I kind of got that, that flavor for being a startup for just kind of going into some place with a vision and saying like, how do I form the partnerships that are gonna help me be able to execute here? How do I build a team? And then from there, I decided to uh, go get my MBA and be able to add a little bit more strategy to the work I was already doing. And I joined a scale-up organization where there was a founder that had been around for about 30 years and was looking to expand into some new markets and and grow into an international brand. And what I really enjoyed about that was I kind of discovered my my super skill set of really focusing on... As a founder, like what are the things that only you can do? And how do you automate, systematize, and um and export everything else so that way you can focus your brain power on your unique skill set? And from there, we worked in, and scaled up into a multinational organization, which was a ton of fun. And then I decided why don't i go and expand my skill set and jump into a more sales focused role which i did for for the next 6 years before starting my own startup and then when i jumped into my own startup which was boston juicing so it was a lifestyle business and i opened up i was in the process of opening up my third store within a year when i decided to sell and that's kind of how i got into hubspot I had done this MBA. I had a lot of great information, but at some point as a founder, you're sitting there at midnight trying to figure out your strategy, and I had no idea what textbook that that marketing thing was in. So like many of you, I started Googling, and I found that a lot of the advice that I could rely on and that I felt coincided with the brand experience that I wanted was coming from HubSpot. And I started using our free software and used it until I hit the absolute limits of of its capacity. And at which point when I decided to sell my business and I was trying to decide where do I want to go? What do I want to do to kind of expand that, that next piece of my career journey? I really wanted to focus on something that was a great cultural fit and also to be able to still work in with startups because there's nothing more exciting than being an entrepreneur there's nothing more exciting than working with founders who are working on your own vision and your own goals. So when I was approached by HubSpot for startups, I thought perfect fit. I can still be in the startup ecosystem and be able to expand my skill set and work with a product that I really love and that helped me grow my business. And that's kind of what what leads me to today.
0: Cool. And just to quick 20 second recap what just for i'm i'm guessing most people know what hubspot is but just for those that are listening to don't what is hubspot
1: yeah um great question so quick elevator pitch around around hubspot free crm with a sales marketing and service hub built on top of it and 600 integrations So what it can really be is kind of your one-stop shop for your business to be able to run all of your processes and have all of those things connected to be able to get some great data. So if you kind of took the core competencies, let's say of Salesforce, Marketo, Calendly, Zendesk, MailChimp, Hootsuite, a handful of others, rolled them into one, added some things, that's essentially what we do.
0: That's, that's, that's an awesome elevator pitch. I'm actually going to tangent. We're going to, we're going to curve ball here because one of the questions is related to pitching. And I, I wanted to take a quick second and dissect what you just said there. And, and this, this is what I love about ask me anything this is because we can, we can jump off different lanes. Right. But, but like, obviously you've done this elevator pitch, I don't know, 1400 times, 20 times. Right? <laughs> um, and, and so one of the, one of the questions from the audience is, is, is Ampere one of the companies, it, here, they're gonna do their first investor pitches practice tomorrow, actually. If if you know you're here live, and it's a three-minute elevator pitch. Um, well, not a million elevator pitch, an investor pitch, and they're having trouble kind of trying to dwindle down the amount of information that they want to put in those three minutes, they're trying to cram you know every last bit in. Um, obviously, we could probably spend the next 30 minutes just trying to dissect HubSpot's product, their mission, their values their team, et cetera. Right. But, but I think what you did there was, was quite effective for, for just to give us a a general understanding. So, so from based on what you've done and the, the thousands of pitches you've done, like how do you kind of narrow down to like what's important in, in, in Eldridge? And I think to dissect that even more, why are those pitches important?
1: Mm, Absolutely. Um, I think the first bit of advice that I give so many people pitching is that This doesn't need to be explaining your entire product, your entire service, the ins and outs of how you do it. This is something that I wanna give you just enough to be interested, to know the value that I would bring to you. So that way you can ask more questions. And that's essentially what your pitch is anyhow, right? You don't need to explain the ins and outs of absolutely everything you do. You need to give them a taste that's going to hook them. And that's how I think about my elevator pitch. And I also think about, I tried this out because I'm in a niche industry, right? Not everybody knows accelerators, incubators, tech. And I tried out my pitch on my friends and family that know nothing about tech and do it again and again until it makes sense to people that have, have no experience in what you're doing. Especially as a technical founder, it's really easy to kind of go too far into that. Um, so I would say those are, those are two of the key things. And also just be really clear about what your value proposition is in everything you do if you're meeting with an investor if you're meeting with a partner know what value you bring to that relationship and be really confident and concise
0: Mm -hmm. now that's that's perfect advice and just to flip side that what do you think things are so so we go back into that use case of, of you know he's potentially pitching to investors what do you think people don't care about seeing in that first pitch or what are Mm. some things that you can kind of just throw away right off the bat that you, I mean, people have also pitched to you. So context, we haven't fully dived into, you know, your background at HubSpot too, but I'm sure you also get pitched a lot. Um, including by launch when we first met, like I was trying to explain to you all our different programs and stuff like that. So, so we've, we've been through a lot. Um, but, but like, what are your things that you think people put in, but don't actually matter that much?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a delicate balance with vanity metrics and especially things like social media. So sometimes I see somebody go in with a pitch deck where they're like, hey, we have this many followers on Facebook, we have this many followers on Instagram. That's great, but I don't know if those followers are actually customers, if they're actually going to convert. Um, So some of those metrics can be helpful, but I would so much rather know how many people do you have on your beta? How many people are committed to purchase once you get out of that? Who are the people that you're potentially looking at partnering with? So I think that's part of it. And also striking the right balance when you talk about, about your team members. Don't overinflate yourself of, because I've seen people go in where they're like, hey, I used to work for Google and like all this. But when you do a quick LinkedIn search, were you like an intern at Google? Did you work at like a Google store? Like don't overinflate yourself when you are presenting your team, what your, you know, what your investors really want to know is what they, what are they going to bring to the table? What is their unique experience that's going to help you grow that product? And that's the vision that you should have rather than pitching a whole line, a whole long line of your their resumes.
0: No, that's, that's awesome. That's terrific. So hopefully that helps you guys out. i here, uh, feel free to follow up. Um, but rolling back, like I've been hinting at it for, for a second now, but what what exactly is your role at HubSpot today entail?
1: Yeah, so I represent the, I'm head of partnerships at the HubSpot for Startups program. So essentially when we started scaling HubSpot and we now um, just recently hit 100,000 customers, of which 16,000 are startups. So we're really focused on on this market. And what I was tasked with doing was coming in and building partnerships with accelerators, incubators, and VCs to be able to reach startups and help startups be aware of this program that we have to help you scale. We kind of essentially realized we have a a great product, but when our founders were looking at the market, we realized a lot of startups need to be able to have sales and marketing software. But when you have that initial check and you have to be really You know, you have to be really tight about where you're spending your money. A lot of these products were just priced out for startups. So, what we did is we created a program where we will scale up with you and you can start at up to 90% off the software in year one, and then 50%, and then 25%. So, that way, it gives you the ability to have this really high powered software that's going to help you scale and make you look really professional, but that it's going to grow and scale with you at at a price you can afford. So a lot of my role is finding those right partners to be able to reach startups and also doing education for startups. Because if you've heard anything about HubSpot and you've heard about Inbound, Our, our whole idea is really to give value first. And if you are seeing that value, if you are seeing that we're doing like sessions on SEO or on your approach to sales, that when it comes time for you to be able to adopt software, we hope that you'll think of us. So those are some of the big things that I do and probably another 50, 50 hats that I wear on and (laughs) (laughs) off.
0: Yeah. And I know we were talking off air, but when you initially joined the HubSpot team, like, how familiar were you with like accelerators, incubators, and and I and I want to say you you have partnerships across North America, if not more. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but but like, how did you jump into that?
1: Yeah. So right now we have over four thousand partners globally, and I have the benefit of being part of a global team where I have colleagues in in Asia and in Latin America and in Europe. When I entered into this role, I wasn't very familiar with this, to be honest, because that's not how I had raised money for my business. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really go through the typical accelerator incubator route. I knew of it, but I just decided to do a really deep dive into into self-educating. But also, I think, and, and we could talk a little bit more about partnership strategy and approach, So much of what I learned, and Sam and I were talking about this early on when when I was kind of new into the role and saying, what's going on? I'm looking to expand my footprint in this region, was just entering in with a lot of humility, but also being able to lean on my network to ask a lot of questions. It's amazing when you talk to somebody and say, all right, what is the Vancouver ecosystem like? Who are the main players? What are the things that have worked and not worked before? And just being able to gather enough data and information to be able to figure out, okay, this might be new to me, but here's where I can deliver value, and and starting off on that foot, and we have we have grown exponentially in the last year and a half.
0: Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And and so let's draw back to when when you first started, right? Like obviously you're not HubSpot wasn't like a brand new company, so so you're not starting with like a white piece of paper, right? They must have given you a list of names or said google x or or whatever right so but but reality is you don't know the 18 accelerators in in canada versus the 14 accelerators in washington state and, and whatever how do you actually go and get started because i think a lot of the listeners that are listening right now like they're in on this foot where they know they have something pretty good um they probably have existing people that have told them that are using it that tell them it's pretty good but now they're in this new place um and and so so you know, aside from the very obvious, like, like just Google lists and make lists and, and cold email, like wh- how are you approaching them?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a blanket answer and then give you a, a dive mm-hmm. deep answer because I was given a broad mandate with very little direction in how do you find these partners? How do you prioritize these partners? That was really up to me. I use Crunchbase a lot. I use Zoom Info a lot. I use Hunter.io a lot. And I use my tools to be able to figure out who I wanna reach out to. But from there, I think one of the big things is being able to use your little foothold in that network to be able to grow your network. So I started in Boston on the East Coast. And for those of you that are international, you'll also find out that in, in the US as well as Canada, they're very distinctly different markets. They, on average, we'd like to say there's about 11 different geographic markets in the U.S. And when I started in Boston, I then decided after about five months to be part of the founding team out in the Bay Area, which is a totally new beast. So I had to really think about this in terms of like entering a new market. And this new market, if you're talking to VCs and investors, it's very insular. It's all about who you know. It's all about, you know, what have you proven? And when you're a startup, Or when you are, you know, we were really well known on the East Coast, we're known on the West Coast, but not as well. I had to think about how do I leverage the brand awareness and the reputation of my partners to be able to to get that foothold in. So when I when I bring on a new partner, I like to have an idea when I get into that meeting of who is their network, who are the major players, and ask for introductions, but also make it really easy the easier I can make it and say hey Sam you said that this accelerator is is really big in your ecosystem if I sent you an intro email would you mind sending that over and you being willing to do that is going to help me kind of leverage that that brand awareness to do so. So that would be kind of one part of of entering into these markets. And I would also say, similar to the way that you reach out to investors, being really specific and using all the information that you have to be able to get these intros. VCs don't want to speak to you or I if they don't know about our company. And when I am approaching um, VCs as partners, which are a little more difficult than my accelerators or incubators, I'm going to go in and say hey, I saw that you recently funded X company, which is a series A deal. Congratulations. I've been following them. And I want you to know that we're able to offer them up to 90% off. That's a value of on average $20,000. I run this program. Let's talk and see if if we can get more aligned. And that way they know that I've done the research, that there's a specific value. And I'm also thinking about this is from my my sales days because business development is similar to sales, but not quite the same. It's thinking about what do they care most about? Delivering value to their startups and scaling them. So everything that I write to them has to be tailored in that way, which is totally different than how I approach accelerators or incubators.
0: For sure, care about what they care about.
1: Exactly. And show them that you understand that. Even when you're new in, do the research and show that you understand what it is that are their concerns and their pain points and speak to that.
0: Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And I'm gonna flip again and and talk about, you know, when when you send emails out like that, I'm presuming some of them are gonna be cold or some of them might be warm intros if, you know, you, you got through Sam and Sam sent it to someone else and that might be a little bit warmer. Um, how do you deal with rejections or silence or do you just write it off?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So a couple of different ways, I will um, shameless plug in that using HubSpot, I can see some really helpful insights that help me decide how to respond. So I can see whether they opened up my email, I can see whether they clicked on it, because my follow up is going to be very different if I see you've opened it three, you know, 13 times, but maybe haven't responded, then I know you've probably shared it with your team, maybe it's this is something you're considering, and I'm going to have a more thoughtful follow up versus you never opened it, you never clicked on it. So that data piece is always really important. I would say handling rejection goes back to when I was in the sales role. And sometimes you just feel like you sent out again and again and again, and you're, you're just getting kicked in the teeth. And so what I did is I made myself a, a wins folder where I took, if I did a great session with Sam and he sent me an email that said, great job, I pasted it into that folder. And I just made myself a, a folder of all of the great feedback to kind of help pump me up to get back out there. So I would say that's that's part of it. But also, there is a real balance between if you are not getting responses, you need to adapt your approach if that's happening consistently. And again, that comes back to, to data. So when I send um, a sequence, so when I'm doing cold prospecting, I can see, what percentage of people opened it, which percentage clicked on it. So that way I can hone in and say, all right, if nobody opened it, there's something wrong with my subject line. There's something wrong with my first couple sentences of my email. If nobody clicked on it, there's something wrong with the content. But the balance here is the same as when you're running your business in general, in that you need to be able to experiment and to adapt, but be able to do that quickly at the same time as not always shifting gears because then you don't know what's going to work and sometimes we get so inundated by feedback or we get so worried that something isn't working that we don't give time to let those new strategies play out so i know that's a little bit of a blanket answer but that's (laughs) that's how i approach it and just try and think about what the data is telling me
0: no for sure because i i mean like one of the common things is yesterday for for those that are already in north america was like president's day in, in in america and it was family day in bc here um so so anybody that sent a cold email out yesterday, you probably didn't get an answer, but you also probably didn't do anything wrong. Um, so, so sometimes it's just being aware of, of very little things like that. And, and it's like, Oh no, Kelsey didn't respond to my email in the last four hours. I must've done it wrong. Um, I, I definitely have gotten that type of feeling before in the past, um, for sure. And then, and then, so to kind of tie that in there, um, let me just dig down into this question here. With, with your partners, like they're all going to be unique in their own way. How are you kind of making sure you're, you're leveraging what they're good at? Like, is it because you've already done the research before? And, and I'm just going to, again, use launches as, as a carefree example. Um, like, are you looking deep into launch and potentially going, Oh, they might have 20 startups that might be interested in HubSpot in the long run, right? If we're talking about end goals, um, or, or how do you kind of balance and then, but like, you know, Launch's business model is very different than say Y Combinator or, you know, throw in another, another incubator accelerator. How are you kind of managing, like how to, how to utilize these partners actually?
1: Mm. So I like to have a really good idea of what are the things that I bring to the table? What are the levers that I can pull? What are, what are the things that I absolutely cannot adapt on? Like I can't change the pricing discounting for people, but these are different things where I can be flexible to think about how I can have a give take in, in each one of these relationships. And I make sure that I go into every one of these meetings with having done my research. I don't think you have to, I mean, it depends on, on how complex your sale is and how hard it is to get to that, that decision maker. But I certainly have gone through the site, have an idea of, of what you're doing, and maybe what are like a couple of the things that I'm really interested in. And from there, I think there's a, there's a couple keys to success. One, being able to go in and show that you've done a little bit of research and say, hey, I saw Launch Academy has this, this, and this. How do you approach this? And being able to have enough open-ended questions to be able to suss out what are the other opportunities that I might not be seeing online or that I might not be seeing researching. And I think having, having that balance, so that way, if there are other things that are potential that you're letting that person bring it up to you, and I would also say I think this is pretty true in the North American market. Most, you know, even more true in the U.S. market, that I've realized that we are so direct and we are we are pretty blunt. When you come to, like, let's say when I'm working with a European partner or um, you know or one of my partners in Latin America, and I like to ask a lot of questions, but then just be able to level and be be very transparent and say all right, Sam, this is what I'm hearing. This is what, you know, this is what I am KPI to. This is what I'm looking to achieve. This is what I hear that you're looking to achieve. Make sure that you feel heard and then be able to say, here's some ideas of how I think we can work together to do this. What are your thoughts? And I try to make it collaborative and also be specific. Get an idea of committing to one thing, two things, and that being the max. It's just like your, your pitch event. You're launching a partnership and you got to think about what is the long-term strategy? What are you trying to build towards and just be able to do enough to get your foot into the door and be able to advance your mission.
0: No, oh, that's, that's terrific. So with, with your partners, and now we're getting a little bit specific, was there an accelerator or, or just partner general, or it could be VC or whatever that you're like, this would be a really great partner, but they're not responding to me, but I don't want to give this up because I think they would be a really great partner like what like the the amazon of, of your partnerships for 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 lack of a better expression um, how do you how do you handle that and how do you keep trying when you're not getting a response but you know it's ideal you just need to get in the room
1: yeah um so i've i've certainly had that situation and i've had it go a variety of ways so i'll i'll give you a couple examples so one was a major VC in the Bay Area. And I really wanted to bring them on. I, I'd spent a lot of time invested in it. I met with a couple of people there. We had chatted and I knew that you know, for HubSpot, they'd be really excited to see this brand name on. And I, I went through it. So at the end of, of the day, you know, we can have partnership conversations, but whoever is my partner, they have to sign an agreement. They have to fill out an application to say that they want a partner. So that's kind of our, our trigger, right? I had gone through all of these conversations, and I had been pretty persistent. And then I eventually got the email back from the VC that said, "Hey, you know, you've been really persistent, and I, I have to reward that. I'm, I'm happy to uh, to fill out the application and help you hit your quota for the month." And I sat on that for a second. I was like, "Oh, this victory actually doesn't feel that good." Um, <laughs> I don't feel like i won here because i'm looking for a genuine partnership i'm looking for somebody who values what i bring to the table and i had a choice i said either at that point i bring on this partner so i can sign it and in the short run say like woohoo big name but in the long run i'm like that's that's not actually good for my brand and my program because if you don't see what value i'm bringing to the table this isn't going to be a real partnership and this isn't going to get me where i want to go and i actually wrote back to them after working on this for months and said I really appreciate it, but I just don't think that we're aligned. And if that, you know, if that changes for you, let me know. Wow. So that's, that's one possible iteration. I've also had others where, you know, early on in, in my partnership, when I, in my partnership career, when I wasn't as experienced at pitching, when I didn't know the industry as well. And I, I got onto a call actually um, with somebody who I consider a, a good friend now it's uh, down at WTIA. And in Seattle, and when we got on that first call, I don't know what happened. I just totally, I just, I just didn't connect. I didn't communicate it properly. It just, it just totally landed flat. And I knew, I think I'd psyched myself up because I knew that they were a big partner. They had a lot of like influence in the ecosystem. And at that point, I really had to, I got off the call and I was like, all right, I shot myself in the foot. Now what? I don't want to just give up on this. And like, I felt a little embarrassed and I thought, you know, I could just, nobody's going to hold me accountable if I don't chase after this, but then I'm like, it's also a really good learning experience. So I sat down I'm like, okay, how do I refine this? What do they actually care about? And how can I reenter this with giving something of value to them to open the door back up? And I swallowed my ego and decided to come back at it. And we met in person which we used to do before 2020 and we hit the relation off you know relationship off great this is one of my strongest partners we love working together and so sometimes it it just requires really going back at it if if you didn't get it right the first time but you have to have that trigger to reach back out like what is the thing that you're going to bring to them to make an excuse to open the door again
0: mhm for sure and then you you mentioned again off air that through these accelerators you end up directly talking to, and in this case, here we are again, um, directly talking to startups themselves and you end up doing a lot of mentorship talks or even workshops and stuff like that with them. Um, I guess just to give some context, where, where are most of these startups that you're working with? Like, I guess, what stage are they at? Where are they at? Just give us some context first.
1: Mm, yeah. For the most part, I would say that pre-seed through series A is generally the, the stage of the startups and when, when it comes to markets, I mean, granted, we have a very broad geography, but it's been really interesting in this last year because normally with you know, my accelerator network or my VC network, there's a requirement to, to relocate your company to be right by that accelerator, right by that VC, which kind of further concentrates these hubs. And what I've been seeing more with, with my global accelerator partners are that more things are going virtual that less companies are being asked to relocate, and then more companies are having this question of, well, where is it most strategic for me to be? And it may be in the Bay Area, or it may be in in another city. It might be growing hubs in Vancouver. It might be hubs in you know in um, Austin or Miami. And there's there's been a lot of conversation around where are the new hubs? Is there going to be a new Silicon Valley? Um, and and I I think that you're still gonna see that in in some of our big cities like um, if you look at Toronto, Seattle, New York, the Bay Area, these are going to still continue to be hubs, but it's also going to be more decentralized. And we're seeing that the community is really is really taking off in Vancouver. We're seeing that it's really taking off. In, um, in places like Salt Lake City, as I, as I said, Miami, Austin. And I think it gives a lot more flexibility to where you want to be headquartered and to think about rather than just proximity to that accelerator, that network, you know, what's going to get you in into the market that you're most interested in? Are you interested in expanding into Latin America and you wanna test out in Miami, great. Is it really important for you to be in a Western time zone, but you don't want to pay Bay area prices. You can still be in Vancouver, Seattle and, and do that. So I think that that landscape is, is really changing. There's, there's two kinds of startups, either the ones that are trying to get out of the hubs as fast as possible or the (laughs) ones that are trying to get in because it's the cheapest that it's, that it's ever been in some of these major cities.
0: No, that's, that's crazy. And then, so working with them, like, what are, what are some common mistakes you see startups making? And, and maybe it's the one thing that you repeat in webinar after webinar, workshop after workshop. What are what are people either doing wrong or not doing?
1: Um, there, there are so many different things. Um, but one thing that I think is important because some of us uh, early on in the chat, we're talking about scaling. And one of the mistakes I see is, as people scale are one, not thinking about what systems you have to set up to scale with you, not just the software systems, but in turn terms of your internal operations, because right now you might be a team of one, a team of two, you're selling, but how are you systematizing that? So that way, when you bring on that next hire, when you are jumping into that new market and things are accelerating quickly, that you have something set up that you can actually scale with and I think there's two parts of this as well. And I will I will say that this is a mistake that I made. When I jumped in, I Googled every startup free offer, free trial that I could. And I got a bunch of free software and I was super psyched about it. And I thought it was just a genius. And then I realized that none of it talked to each other. And it was all timing out at different times. And when I was thinking about building my infrastructure, I didn't think about what what systems can talk to each other and how is that going to enable me to give, give me data that I can use? Because you're doing so many things at once. Like if I go back to talking about social media, I was thrilled that I had, you know, when I first launched our Facebook page, we had 2000 new, um, you know, new followers overnight, which was great, but I had no idea if they were customers. I had no idea how to nurture them and When I found out that my free trial would expire on X, then I was trying to get all the data out of there and I just didn't have any actionable insights to figure out where do I spend my limited time and resources. So I think that integration is important. And I would also, on the integration piece, say as you scale, as you build out a product team, as you build out sales teams, making sure that you keep them connected and that communication loop connected. One of the things that, that HubSpot made a mistake of when we were early on in scaling is, you know when we were a small company, we had like our product guys or product people um, sitting right next to our salespeople and that way, and, and our service people right there. So you could hear sales is hearing this, getting this feedback, feeding it right to product so they can make these changes. And service was able to also speak to, to sales and product and, and that worked. But then when we scaled, And all these things became separated and product has its own office and sales had its own. There wasn't a great way to keep those lines of communication open. And when you are a startup, you need to be gathering that feedback. You need to be constantly iterating. You need to constantly be improving. And that means that your teams have to have an open flow of communication to be able to do so. So we really overhauled the way that we were approaching our teams and our conversations to make sure that it was resulting in the best user experience. And I'll I'll add on one more thing because I've I have so much startup advice, the things that that I see. But one of the things I've been asked about a lot this year is how do we how do we pivot during COVID? How do we reach into these new markets during COVID? How do we acquire new customers? And the resounding thing that I keep on saying is that um, retention is a new acquisition you are never going to get a new customer cheaper than you are going to retain an existing customer. And a happy customer is going to tell three people on average and an unhappy customer will tell 10. And this is something that we learned through our scale up process at HubSpot as well. We got to a point where we were really excited about our tools, we had a lot of customers, but at the end of the day, our our customer experience wasn't as great as it could be. And there was just a disconnect there. And as much as we were, you know, it's exciting to look at your metrics of customer acquisition. If you aren't also balancing that with looking at how many customers are churning, then you're just going to invest more and more into acquisition while you're, while you're losing. And in, in 2020, especially, your acquisition might not be a rocket ship. It might not be as fast but making sure that the customers you have are are really happy and using them and their inroads to be able to get into these markets is going to be more vital than ever.
0: That's amazing. So, so definitely that, that churn rate number becomes one of those metrics that that we want to focus on even, I guess, especially in COVID year. For sure. I have, I have another question from, from the audience here. So he talks about in in your experience and maybe it's experience of, of companies you've worked with, um, what are some of the biggest challenges companies coming outside of U.S. Canada culture are facing when they're moving to North America? And and he's asked for what are some quick tips to survive these first few steps?
1: Yeah, I think two things that that I would say are, are the biggest the biggest issues that I see is not realizing how different the culture is. I mean, even companies that are moving from US to Canada or or vice versa, not understanding how different that is, not understanding how very different these geographies are. So things, you know, marketing tactics that may work in New England, in the United States, aren't gonna work or they may not work in the South in the US. So having a really strong understanding here and also, some of the companies that I've seen that have really successfully, you know, transitioned but hit some snags weren't prepared for um, the volume increase and and how to scale. So I think really being really being thoughtful on this kind of goes back to when i talked about my experience scaling is focusing in on that founder and saying what are the things that only you can do and how do you systematize absolutely everything else to make sure that you can focus on the highest growth priorities so not being prepared for for that volume and i know as as an early founder i was so excited when i had a ton of traffic and a ton of customers But then there were times when I felt overwhelmed by it. And I wanted to be able to say like, hey, I'm a startup. I have like a million hats that I'm wearing. Please understand that. I'm really excited for your business. But all they see is that I didn't respond to their email in three days. And having those systems to help you do that is going to be really important. So I would say those are kind of two of two of the pitfalls to avoid. And I would also say kind of tips to go in. Again, I look at a lot of things with a partnership lens, but you know, if you have a big customer in Vancouver or in the Bay Area, when you're entering into new markets and you might not have that brand reputation yet, how do you kind of piggyback off of their brand reputation to help you make those entrances in? How do you really focus on having that great customer story, making sure that they're highlighting their excellent experience and being able to do things like when I look at the Bay Area, which is a newer market, we've been here, but this is a newer market for our startups program. I'm looking at who are the major players there that I can form really great partnerships with, that I can do events with and be able to put my name alongside to be able to kind of piggyback into these markets.
0: Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, you know, all of these things we're talking about are, are all super important. I think one, a couple key things I just pulled from your answer is is having that balance between acquisition and landing the those initial customers, but also making sure, you know, those people are going to be your pioneers for your next 10 customers, right?
1: Mm-hmm. At the same
0: time, and I'll add in a caveat to, to my make-believe situation, they the you know, you might not be starting from zero, right? We take it back to you to your your juicing experience with with your different stores like when you're starting out your second store, it's really great that you're seeing, you know, a couple of people trickle in, but you still have to manage those other stores, right? So, so like, do you have any advice on how to balance all these priority one things? Um, and, and where, where should a founder, I guess, in an ideal sense, be spending their, their time?
1: Hmm. That is the golden question, isn't it? <laughs> um, this is, this is what I think every founder is going to do some great things at and some, and some terrible things at And I think some of the things that can, that can get overwhelming from my experience is being open to feedback while also not being overly driven by it. Because some of your initial customers, for example, they, they might give you great feedback, but that initial customer not might not be the market that you're looking to take this direction in. Maybe they're a B2B customer and you're looking to go to more to B2C. So being able to temper getting all of this feedback with not overgeneralizing, because that might be one person's experience, but not everybody's. So how do you kind of have that growth mindset, be able to take in feedback, and also be able to tell tell people, this is the feedback that I want, and these things I don't need, because it can be overwhelming, and there can be a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and when you are in the entrepreneur space, it can be easy to go from event to event to event, and get all of these good tips, and then figure out where do I action on this. So early on in my career, um, I actually worked as a as a project manager. So what I like to think about are when I am trying to arrange my priorities, I, I easily go back to the to the Eisenhower grid. I think it's great. I know that that's an old tool. But being able to focus on as a business looking for your month looking for your quarter, what are the things that are urgent and important? What are the things that are you know, important, but not urgent that you need to be working towards before they become fires? And what are the things that are, are just noise and being able to channel that out? So that way, when all of these inputs start coming in, or you might have a ton of people that want to partner and you're excited. And wow. I wasted a lot of time in meetings with people that wanted to partner. And I'm doing all this stuff for one event when really that's not it's, it's not really helped me achieve my overall goals. So I think having that having that to look back on and also thinking about what are the contingencies? What are the things that I need outside people or help on that I need to be ahead of the game? Because I don't wanna burn relationships just because I'm coming at things last minute. And what are the things that I need to accomplish to be able to take that, that next step? Um, so that's a pretty general response. Um, But that's, that's how I would, I would try and figure out what your, what your North star is.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, just to kind of wrap things up here, I know you do a couple other, other workshops. So, so, I mean, free plug for you, like, do you have anything coming up that might be relevant to, to other, other startups that are listening to this right now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we do a a lot of different workshops on either sales, marketing, SEO, and um, just being able to give you advice as a founder of where to get started on, on each one of these things. And we have, um, I, I have to say I am unprepared with, uh, with links to drop in right now, (laughs) but we have some, some different workshops that are coming up around fundraising and being able to, um, hopefully also have some more events this year, um, focused on, um, fundraising for diverse, uh, founders, because that's one of the things that we're really seeing in, in this year is the the inequity with underrepresented founders, and if I also had to give one piece of advice for for you that are early on and founding your team, we know that companies that have a diverse executive team have on average ninety percent higher revenues. So it's not just about let's be reactionary in the moment and be able to uh, to bring on on somebody to be able to say that we're focusing on diversity, but if you're going into new markets, having a diverse perspective in your thoughts, in, in the way that you are approaching things, and the backgrounds of the people that you are hiring is absolutely vital. And if that's not something that you're thinking about in building your early team, then it's easy to get too far down the road and have a very homogenous team and then be trying to build diversity when you haven't created a culture that is, that is really soliciting that. So we're thinking about how we can help diverse founders be able to um, be connected with fundraising, but I would certainly start thinking about that earlier rather than later when you're building your founding team
0: for sure. And, and as you get those links, I'll, I'll be more than happy to share that with our community. So no worries there. Um, And so for, for just as a last question, unless there's anything else coming in, I, 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 I think it's a fun exercise to end with this because we, we've heard a lot of different uh, great advice about how to reach out to people, whether it's cold or warm or, or whatever. But now let's, let's kind of reverse it. There, there's a founder that's either listening to this publicly later on, I don't know, five months from the recording date of today or, or whatever, or they're in the audience now live and they're like, oh, I think I'd be a really great partner for, for HubSpot or Kelsey or whatever, or you specifically. How do you recommend they reach out to you? Because you, like you might see a couple of names in the screen right here, but chances are you might not get to know them later. <laughs>
1: um, absolutely. So there's there's a couple of different ways. So if you are if you're a founder that is looking to maybe use HubSpot for yourself, I would go to hubspot.com forward slash startups and Launch Academy is one of our, our partners on there, and you can apply so you can get access to the discounts, also the education, you'll be able to have a whole wealth of resources available to you. And if you are looking to partner, you go to hubspot.com forward slash startups forward slash partner. Or you can send me a, a LinkedIn request uh, for Kelsey Gardner and I'm happy to connect you. I'm typically looking to speak with accelerators, incubators, VCs, and some select membership organizations. So if that's something you're interested in, feel free to reach out, and I will direct you in in the uh, to the right place.
0: Awesome. So so we'll make sure to leave leave Kelsey's LinkedIn um, for you. Everybody that's listening to to connect with them. Um, well, Kelsey, this has been awesome. I, I, I personally learned a lot. I think I, I felt it in my bones when we were talking about integrations and scale and stuff like that, because I think, I think when, when a lot of our, our programs were a bit newer, a lot of it just lived in my head. Right. And I'm sure a lot of founders can can relate to that, that idea of like, what do we mean documented? Like, why am I writing it for myself to, to, for later? Right. But now I'm kind of reaping the, the unintended award rewards of, of not writing things down. So, so that's a big push of, of what we're trying to do at launch too. Um, and, and I think it's really important that the startups need to hear that as well. Um, so, so anyway, again, I really appreciate your time here. Um, we'll, we'll stay connected and I'll, I'll, we'll be back again soon.
1: Sounds great. Thanks, Sam.
0: All right. Take care, everyone.